You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles. The projectionist has Svika. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kolkowski, and we're here to talk about some options for you as you are perhaps getting ready at this time, when of this time of the year, this season of Christmas feel-good movies. And of course, we, we aren't here to bash those movies. Um, I, I think what maybe what we'd like to suggest tonight, um, like we always do, is some options for some films if the kids have off um, whatever your denomination is, and it's not, and you don't necessarily want to be plugged into some story uh, that is all just about goodwill towards men and uh, the power of miracles or the power of who Santa Claus is. So we have some options here, some options from the wonderful vault of old movies, and many of them available on free streaming services or on YouTube or on uh, the Criterion Channel or TCM. Both really great options. Again, I don't know what it's going to cost you uh, to sign up for them, but I think uh, both of those uh, options, TCM or uh, the Criterion Channel, give you such a a wide array of of films, even if you don't go for the art house European films that you can find in Criterion, just the good old uh, uh, glorious era of American movie making. um, Dark and and sometimes mysterious and nutty. Uh, it's all there, you know. Those two alone, you can really bounce things off of. Uh, and this doesn't, you know, count Tubi and Hulu and, and all the other places where you can find stuff. Uh, you know, in the attic of of Prime Video. Um, so uh, Yitzchak, I know there was something that uh, a film that you rewatched uh, that you thought was a good companion piece of. Uh, uh, to what we were talking about last week, and somewhat of a lot of fun. So let's talk about your film first. All right. Well, the movie that I, I I'm picking is called Monster on the Campus. Uh, it's again uh, that we're using that we're going back to Universal in the '50s. Universal International at the time was what, how they called it, and uh, and Jack Arnold seemed to be a very prolific director of <coughs> of of uh, you know, a lot of the more classic science fiction and, and monster movies uh, of of Universal in the 1950s. So he did The Creature from the Black Lagoon. He did last week, we talked about The Incredible Shrinking Man. And I think this is probably one of his lesser uh, films of that era that I just happened to watch over the weekend, uh, but still one of my favorites. I remember seeing it on uh, Sci-Fi Channel in the 90s. Uh, and it's 1958's Monster on the Campus. And it's just a silly, uh, really ludicrous type of science fiction. Uh, that's, I think, what gets me out of, <laughs> from this movie is not only is the acting much, you know, really subpar, but the, you know, I, I was always, especially when I was younger, a stickler for you know the scientific explanation of how whatever fantastic kind of thing took place, and this one really, really was stretching that, but really trying to present it as very, very scientific. Uh, it was it's a story about a, a, a an anthropology professor on a college campus, um, biology professor, whatever he was teaching 
and he orders from Madagascar a dead coelacanth was only known from the fossil record. Uh, that family of fishes are many different species of coelacanth that are known in the fossil record. And then all of a sudden in 1938, so 20 years before this movie was made, did they finally find a species deep in the ocean off the coast of uh, Madag between Madagascar and the Comoros Islands over there? They did find some live coelacanth that seemed to have been known somewhat by the local natives, uh, but it was a it is a deep sea fish. It's a very rare fish, and a large large fish and. And then maybe I think in the 1970s, they actually found another species somewhere in the Pacific uh, around the, the Philippines or somewhere around there. So there are today two species of this family, which was, again, the family was only known by the, from the fossil record and no fossils were found uh, after the end of the Mesozoic era. So it was assumed that, you know, it, it went that, that this family of fish went extinct together with the dinosaurs, the non-avian dinosaurs. And then it was discovered, like I said, in, in the 1930s. So a lot of, especially people who like conspiracy theories and maybe young earth creationists, you know, like to point out, look, if this, if this species survives 65 million years without any leaving anything in the fossil record, maybe there are other Maybe first of all, there the, the the idea of these millions of years might not be so, and then also we might find other things like you know there are legends of various types of animals in Africa that seem to sound like they could be some kind of dinosaurs or something, and people like to you know enjoy these these types of stories. The 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 truth of the matter is though the species. Uh, did evolve over years. It's just that this line, um, you know, was the one that that survived from that. I think it's a coelacanth from that's really a preserved uh, uh, fish from millions of years ago, right? No, no. He he has one that's that's a current one, but the the hop that you know was only revealed halfway through the movie is that when they shipped it from Madagascar for it to make it to America, no, this was a contemporary fish, not a not not an actual fossil, but just what's usually the the another term that's used is a Lazarus taxon, uh, is that this was a you know the as a species or genus of or family that was considered to be extinct and then they found that taxon, you know, again somewhere where they didn't know it had existed before and it was resurrected, you know, like, like the Christian story of Lazarus. But the, uh, the term uh, living fossil is a term that gets thrown around, but it's not, not really a, an accurate term because it's, it's uh, you know, like I said, the, 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 the fish did evolve. This is a different species than lived millions of years ago, or the two species that we know today are different, but but in the movie, the way they play it up is that somehow there's some mysterious force uh, that's keeping, you know, this one animal from evolving. And then the next the next piece yeah. of the story is that in order to preserve this particular specimen, which was a contemporary specimen, 
uh, and to ship it in order to you know it, it eliminate any bacteria or anything that would cause it to decompose, they treated it with gamma rays. And so now you know you have you know you have the the, the, the radiation aspect, the radiation. like we saw from yeah, the radiation comes in and. So that, the, that just explains any radiation just does everything in the 1950s monster movies. It makes Godzilla. It, it wakes up the beast from 20,000 fathoms. And, uh, it, it shrinks the incredible shrinking man. It grows the the amazing colossal man. And and here it actually uh, it it causes de-evolution by <laughs> like, I don't know if Mark Mothersbaugh has, uh, was maybe inspired by this movie, uh, but. So the so this so this specimen actually turns into a a sort of a primitive fish from well, supposedly well, millions of years no, ago, what, right? No what, no, what happens in the movie is that anyone who's exposed to the blood of the fish, there are three three uh, beings that are that they themselves de-evolve because of exposure to the to the radiate radioactive coelacanth blood. So one is a dog. Uh, one of you know, one of the students has a pet dog, and the dog turns into some kind of a saber-toothed wolf. Mm -hmm. One is a a dragonfly that turns into Meganura, so that that's really yeah. pushing back to the Paleozoic era. Even though they say it's from 50 million years ago, it's actually something would be, I think, 250 million years ago. And then uh, this uh, yeah. Arthur Arthur France, the the uh, the professor in the movie. He turns into some kind of a Neanderthal caveman, and he kills a few people, and that's the mystery. Is that you know the? It's not a mystery to us because we see it all happening, but the police they find these fingerprints and handprints and footprints, and they know it's not him, even though it is him because he uh, kind of like that Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, yeah, because is he able to turn back to a a a a, a not a non Neanderthal or does yeah, he? Yeah, yeah, it's it's almost like the Wolfman type of a uh, transformation. He he stays like this caveman creature for maybe an hour or so, and then he and he kills someone, and then he and then he wakes up and he turns back to himself. Not only that, but the we saw the the. Uh, the dragonfly turns after he kills the dragonfly as a giant it it, it shrinks down to a, a normal dragonfly size wow so um sounds like uh uh you say this film is a lot of fun is it hokey is it funny um it it sounds pretty uh, pretty violent is it the type of thing that uh, nobody really takes seriously it is, it is it is a very violent, uh, gory movie to be attracted to the professor, uh, and he winds up killing her. And uh, but he's not really interested in her. And then later, when he is the the monster and and his actual girlfriend or fiance, uh, he he doesn't uh, he doesn't hurt her. Uh, and like he says to her, you know, it, it shows even in that monster state. Uh, there was still some love there and, and but that that's i think probably the hokiest part of the movie in addition to the 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 ludicrous aspect yeah. of the science was that that uh, that you know this uh, and then he decides you know to do an experiment to see cuz he doesn't even remember these things happening you know first it was an accident that he he uh 
uh, he, he holds the fish by its teeth and he winds up cutting himself on the teeth of the fish and he and then he puts his uh, the, his finger in his mouth of the wound that's the the first time that he's exposed and causes him to to transform and then later when he kills the dragonfly and he he picks up this knife that he kills the dragonfly with some of the blood and he kills it on top of the fish some of the blood goes into his pipe and he smokes the pipe and winds up turning into to the monster and then the the third time he actually does it on purpose as an experiment tries to record it and take pictures goes off to a, a cabin winds up destroying the cabin as he destroyed his own laboratory and you know does all these uh so it sounds like you know it's it, it, it sounds like it's uh, the right uh, I see here on our site IMDb site that it's only an hour and 17 minutes so <laughs> if you could push through it so it's almost too long I think for the Kolakowski uh for Kolakowski's but I mean, it's, it's it's fun enough because I've uh, you know and I've seen it I've seen this movie many times. times and I Got Whit, I see Whit, Whit Bissell. Whit Bissell is in it. He's uh, uh Whit Bissell is in it, and he's and he's not as good as he usually is. You know, Whit Bissell is in a lot of these movies, and he's usually much more entertaining. Here, he's much more subdued and not not such a not such a character like he usually is. You know, like he's I guess probably his most fun role I think would be. Uh, and I was a teenage Frankenstein, and he, where he's the, the scientist who makes the Frankenstein and monster, and he, and he says, "Oh, I know you have a, a civil tongue in your mouth because I sewed it there myself." And little <laughs> funny lines that he puts in there. This one, he's he's one of the, uh, uh, one of the administrators of the college, who's you know kind of concerned about Arthur Franz's character, and he's not. He only has a rather minor role in the movie, so it's it, 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 it he's he's kind of disappointing because you expect a lot more <laughs> well, from Whitbissell. Whitbissell, yeah, well, the guy was in so many uh, television programs. Uh, he's probably you know one of the most prolific uh, character television actors. Um, had a, a, a sense of being a real person, like we've talked about uh, a number of times here. So that's a interesting choice, especially. As you say, it, it, it has some similarities to what he, what Jack Arnold's film of the year before, of uh, the Incredible Shrinking Man, but no, nowhere near the pathos and uh, important message for humanity. Yeah, I think, um, I, and that, that's what's just so surprising is that because he, just a year later, he goes to this real schlock after doing something really so, so sublime. You know, you know, everybody has their great day, that great moment. That doesn't mean that they can replicate that. I, I don't think, I don't know if it's fair to hold him to that. Um, but as you say, he still has the craft and technique uh, to produce something. Hollywood um, are hit and miss. I've talked about Gentleman Jim, which I think is a great biopic of Jim Corbett. And I think it's one of the, the best uses of Errol Flynn. Um, this is a biopic that surprised me about how good it was. 1935's uh, Annie Oakley. Uh, directed by George Stevens. Uh, George Stevens, of course, did a number of great films. Um, Giant, A Place in the Sun. Um, the uh, the Diary of Anne Frank. Uh, this was one of his earliest films. Uh, he started off as a cameraman, of course, and he was actually very uh, close to Stan Laurel. 
He helped develop some of the bits that Laurel used on camera. Um, and I never thought George Stevens had such a, a great flair for comedy. Uh, you think of Giant, you think of Shane. Uh, those films aren't really funny at all. This film has a great sense of humor. It's the story of Annie Oakley. It stars Barbara Stanwyck, Melvin Douglas. Um, it is... It also has Preston Foster, um, who I, I wasn't that familiar with. Uh, he has a very uh, important role here. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll, he plays sort of like the male lead. Um, there is uh, an actor I wasn't familiar with, Marani Olsen, who plays uh, Buffalo Bill. Uh, it has a number of great uh, little supporting actors and actresses. Um, Andy Clyde, uh, who's in a, was in a, a whole bunch of different Westerns. Um, I do want to say that, you know, Annie Oakley was a, uh, an American institution. Um, she died only a number of years before this film was made. And of course, every, most people are familiar with Annie Get Your Gun, which was a musical, uh, that was based on the life of Annie Oakley and the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. Um, this film is guilty of being a fictionalized, cleaned up. Uh, I guess, biopic. Uh, I don't think Andy Oakley was as attractive or had the presence of Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, however, um, you know, I, I'm not going to say Barbara Stanwyck was miscast. Um, she has, uh, she brings, you know, her, her intelligence, uh, but a certain sense of, of innocence that, of course, Barbara Stanwyck was known as the ultimate hard-boiled femme fatale later in films and then that 10 years after that. In this film, you could sort of believe she's 15 or 16 years old when this film starts. She is a very slight person. Um, and maybe, you know, the actors around her were much taller. And the story I, I really is a pain, is a pain to America. And it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, America was in the throes of the Depression. Uh, things were very difficult in 1935. Um, the war drums were not really beating but a number of years later, things in America would be quite different. Uh, this film is really a picture postcard to life, you know, at the turn of the century uh, or the 1880s, the 1890s, uh, where telephones uh, were just beginning, um, where the car had not yet taken over. Uh, it, it is a film that uh, is shot so beautifully. Uh, George Stevens started as a cinematographer, and in this film, uh, you can see he actually um, loves uh, how the camera glides over uh, various characters. He has a judicious use of, of close-ups, uh, and, and he, he pokes fun at Buffalo, Buffalo Bill's tresses, as you know, Buffalo Bill uh, uh, had, had long hair, like, you know, like a, like a Rebitson, you know, like a Rebitson shape of, you know, well, going all the way down. Um, and how vain he was about that uh, to another trick uh, shooter uh, called Frank Butler, who was a number of years her senior. And the film, for some reason, does not really follow her actual life and the, uh, how, how young she was when she married him. But it creates a character clearly based on Frank Butler. They call him Toby Walker. This is played by Preston Foster. And... The film begins with the difference between her sort of pristine, 
honesty and his sort of rough showmanship, um, his artifice, uh, his natural tendency to show off, uh, his braggadocio, and she's this you know girl from Western Ohio coming to Cincinnati is just coming to the big city in order to engage uh, and try to shoot and win uh, a, a shooting contest against the great Toby Walker. Um, the, and the film really, in, in a way, is similar to A Star is Born because when she becomes eventually part of the show, she gets signed up. Uh, by Melvin Douglas, who's sort of Buffalo Bill's right-hand man. Again, I don't know if this is it's an actual, I think it's maybe a, an amalgamation of a different, a number of different characters that were there. But I think, you know, as she becomes the star, more the star, um, she becomes the sweetheart that and that is beloved around the world. And he is sort of, he becomes sort of an afterthought. Uh, but unlike uh, A Star is Born, uh, where you actually have the real thorny issue of when you have uh, promoted someone and taught someone and that person starts to surpass you and how you deal with it. Of course, this is a subject that we we talked about uh, when we talked about the film patterns and other things. Uh, but in The Star is Born, uh, Norman Maine, uh, who is able to take Esther Blodgett and turn her into this superstar, of course, it's her own talent that gets her there. Uh, he just you know helps set the table. You know, he he finds himself depressed and he can't live with himself and he he wallows in in in, in, in a state of drunkenness and and her love and her and her frustration is all mixed together. That never happens here. Um, there is uh, people don't like Toby, but you get to see that he really is a decent person. He sort of switches his character uh, a third into the film. And part of the di dynamic of the film is that only Annie knows that he isn't just this braggart, that he is trying to help her, uh, that he does appreciate her, that he even is willing to admit, and he knows that she's a better shot than he is, and that she's able to, uh, to, to, she's better than a gun than he is. Um, but nobody gives him a chance because everybody believes his uh, phony persona. Uh, the film is similar in some ways to George Stevens' other film, Giant. Now, those of you that have can sit through Giant, I don't think the Kolakowskis can because it's about three three hours plus. But if you sit through Giant, you realize that the theme of the film is really racism. It's about uh, the greatness of Texas and what America stood for in the American Plains and that ideal. But it's also about the cost that that ensued, the cost of 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 putting down uh, the other people that had lived in that land. Uh, in terms of uh, Texas, it's about the Mexicans who uh, who are played in a very subservient way and who are uh, dismissed. Um, Dennis Hopper, who plays Rock Hudson's son in a Giant, uh, falls in love with a girl, a Hispanic girl, and uh, the, the film tries to really emphasize the ugliness of prejudice. I, I've said in other discussions, maybe even with you, Yitzchuk, that what was really simmering was not so much uh, anti-Latin feeling, but was anti-Black feeling. And I think George Stevens was using this as somewhat of a metaphor. Here in this film, what he do does is really emphasize um, how terrible 
the hatred is against the American Indian and how unfounded it is. Um, one of the, one of the main characters in the film is Sitting Bull. Uh, it was played by a an actor who I, I you know I don't know if he was actually uh, using the, the 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 proper uh, dialect of of uh, you know of of, the, of that tribe of, of the tribes, but it was his name was Chief Thunderbird, um, and he was definitely a uh, he definitely was a, a person who was from uh, native. He was a Native American, um, and uh, he plays this role in some ways for laughs. In some ways, it's a uh, it's a film where you sort of make fun of of, of some of the attitudes and the mores of the of the, of the Indian, but nothing like uh, Hollywood's ugly part. Um, they they actually. Realize that the Ameri- that those um, those Native Americans are the best shots, uh, are actually the ones who understand loyalty the most, um, while everybody else feels that Toby is just a uh, you know, a braggart. A sitting bull knows he's not, because what happens is in, in, in a very uh, very moving scene, uh, someone uh, they they they're going back. They, the the Wild West show is touring in Cincinnati back where you know Annie got her start and there's someone who's from the Ohio plains whose brother was killed at the the battle of, of the little bighorn and he wants to take revenge on sitting bull and he wants to assassinate him and, and i don't know if this is true it might have happened something like this and as he was trying to to shoot his firearm uh, Toby, this character, realizes what's going on, and he puts his hand and his face right where uh, the bullet and uh, escaped from the from the pistol, and the flash of light of that bullet ends up causing severe damage uh, to his eyes, which makes it impossible for him to be anything like the shot that he used to be. But he hides this. He doesn't tell people about it. Um, and um, when he then has a another, it became part of the act to have the battle of the sexes, so to speak, uh, between Annie Oakley and, and the act, he, of course, um, can't shoot the way he used to. And it becomes a suspicion that he actually tries to shoot her on purpose and to shoot her right, uh, one of her fingers, one of her trigger fingers. And they think that he did that on purpose because he was jealous of her. Um, and of course, Annie is the only one who believes that it was, there's some sort of accident going on and et cetera. Um, it, again, it's a little bit of melodrama that I'm sure is based on nothing. <laughs> just in order to generate to get this get this film moving photograph of Cincinnati and in order uh to get the right shot considering how primitive photographic techniques were you had to stay still for quite a bit of time whereas by 1935 the, the old people in the in the audience remember that but the young people were coming to it didn't realize how it, well, what things were like when you used to have to take a, a picture and there's a, a, a wonderful scene about a minute and a half long as everybody's staying still in order for the photograph to be taken. And of course, there's a fly that's buzzing around someone and, and people are trying to assume the best possible pose in that frozen position. And of course, George Stevens 
you can see that not only that scene, but throughout the incredible attention to detail that he has. I mean, the film in some ways is like a movie within a movie because you get to see why the, the Buffalo Bill was such an incredible showman and why this Wild West show was so popular, trying to, in many ways, I think as Robert Altman uh, developed in his film about Buffalo Bill and the Indians, how this was a fiction. Really what was happening in, at the end of the 19th century was because of the leisure that the, uh, that the Industrial Revolution was granting so many Americans, they were able to spend money on these type of entertainments that sold them a fictionalized version of the West, uh, and which is what people wanted to see. Everybody was wanted to see the Wild West, and Buffalo Bill was going to package it. He was going to package it not with, with you know based on the gritty ugliness and terror that occurred and the and, and the suffering, but rather in some sort of super duper, like incredible trick, trick writing, trick shooting, and Stevens gives you that. He gives you a. Uh, in many, many acts, the, the, the writers that were used here, the, the, uh, and of course, part of what Buffalo Bill did was sort of like spread his wings around the whole world. There was not only uh, the, there was the Cossacks, um, uh, and then there were the Gachos from, from South America. In other words, the the myth of the the myth and the mythos of the Wild West can include any sort of rough and tumble uh, macho uh, and individuals from various eras, and they were all in a way uh, tied together uh, in in an entertainment thing. Um, and, and you need a craftsman like George Stevens to be able uh, to do that. Uh, and and it, it, was there a, a comment? Yes. Yes, there is a comment here. And the comment is, this is what America loved, this America was. Was there an ugly side to it? Yes. Was it unfair the way they were, uh, was it unfair the way they were framing the American Indian, the Native Americans? Yes. But what George Stevens does, instead of getting a character go on a soapbox, he shows how in many ways Sitting Bull is the most prescient character around. Um, at the end of the film, um, you know, Toby is now sort of washed up and is back in the Bowery in a Coney Island type of shooting gallery. Um, and um, he goes to the show to see uh, Annie perform and to see the show again. And of course, he's sitting way, way back in the last row. And of course, when they bring Sitting Bull, uh, you know, to sort of oversee uh, this fictionalized, you know, Indian raid of Indians and the cavalry, Sitting Bull is able to spot Toby uh, more more than anybody else. He's got the best eyesight. He's and again, this probably again fits into this other mythos that the American Indian had, you know, was was granted uh, incredible powers of of prowess of sight and ability and things that nobody else had. And when he sees Toby escaping, he actually goes after him. Um, and it's quite a funny scene how he's able to smell him out and bring him in. And and uh, most of the film, he actually speaks some sort of uh, Indian dialect. Uh, his his English is, is, is very broken, 
but it isn't like F Troop or anything like that. Uh, it's it, it really is done with a, with a tremendous, again, I really recommend this film. I think it's something where if you watch it, it is a, it is a return to a simpler, but in some ways complex era as well. And you really get a, a sense of what made, uh, what was entertainment. And in, in some ways, it's also presages the, the, the women's emancipation movement. There's a couple of scenes in the film where a woman comes into a saloon or into a, a place that's supposed to be all male and people are shocked by it. And, and even the idea of Annie Oakley uh, really breaking the boundaries that she isn't just you know, girls are just a weaker sex and they're just, you know, waiting to, uh, for the knight in shining armor or the cavalryman to save them. You know, Annie is a, a strong, uh, important figure on her own. Um, and as much as everyone wants to protect her, she understands as well uh, what is the real truth. And that comes with her, with her eyesight and her precision with a rifle is also her understanding of human beings. So in some ways it, it actually elevates not just women's intuition, but women's understanding. At the same time, uh, it, it strikes a blow, a tomahawk blow against ugly racism and, and maybe even to reconsider uh, the, that mythos um, that people like Buffalo Bill and others tried uh, to properly. I was growing up, every kid wanted a gun. You know, you know, it, it, it's really also in a period where, you know, today um, it's a subject which, because of the, of the excesses of, of a lot of crazy people, and because of uh, you know some terrible things that have occurred, and maybe because of the, the violence that that has engulfed our country, it, it's hard to to make a film that extols you know rifle shooting and gun shooting and and people that are incredible shots. But I think watching this film, um, it reminds you of, 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 of what that these weapons, which of course can, can wreak havoc and are terrible, but they, they were also the source of, of the image of, of America. And it, it, I think it gives you a sense of understanding of why there, are, there is such passion about trying to outlaw rifles and other types. So Stephen should be given a, a tremendous issue because he was the official uh, photographer uh, and in the, for the U.S. Army and the liberation of the concentration camps. It was his footage of, whether it was Bergen-Belsen or Auschwitz, uh, of the mass graves of the Jews that were there. Um, he, he photographed it. He filmed it. And the, the pieces that he filmed of uh, that, that stand as such a uh, a, a blatant denial to uh, to anything that the people who suspect the Holocaust was a hoax. Um, it definitely changed George Stevens after you know his his stint in the army. And he was actually he worked in the Signal Corps, and you know what that is, Yitzhak. That is really that area of the army that was involved in in filmmaking. And he, along with I mean, there were other uh, Hollywood directors too that uh, had uh, that were decorated. But I think Stevens is really one of the standout uh, people who, in terms of filming Capra, of course, and others. I think Stevens stands out, especially because of the importance of the footage. He also was able to, uh, he, it was his footage, it's the only footage that we have 
uh, color footage, by the way. Yeah, you said that, you know, in, the in real life, she was married to man Frank Butler. And part of the story of how they met, even though, like you said, he was much older than her, was that she beat him in a shooting match. Was was right. that also part of the movie? That was so, so again, it's, that is in the film. She beats, she, but she, but in the film, she loses. She loses on purpose because he's so pretty. <laughs> and she doesn't want him to lose her job. And her mother says to her, Annie, you don't want Margaret Armstrong, who plays his mother, you don't want that young, nice man to lose his job, do you? No, mom. And she does something she never did. She she misses on purpose. Uh -huh. uh, so again, so the but film didn't happen in real life. In real life, she beat real him. life she beat him. <laughs> in real life, she beat him. Yes, but um, you know, I, I read somewhere that uh, that Barbara Stanwyck, um, who I remember uh, growing up uh, as, of course, um, Mrs. Barkley uh, in the Big Valley. Uh, she was the matriarch, uh, and uh, I, I think if you remember, with uh, when Tom Shabilla was on our show, we talked about the uh, the importance of the Big Valley, and you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, she was the last name on the uh, in the credits, and starring Miss Barbara Stanwyck, uh, and uh, so I, I read somewhere that Annie Oakley, which is sort of which is basically a western. Um, was her first foray into westerns, and it was it was a genre that she really enjoyed. Um, and she was, as I said, you know, a, uh, uh, an actress who you know, really you know, spanned many many eras. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that this is one of her great acting gigs. She doesn't really have, to, she doesn't need much range here, but you know, she's 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 quite effective. Um, and uh, like I said, all right, my friends. So those, I think we've, uh, you know, <laughs> take your time, watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.